Hello, everyone, and welcome back to EpiCentral. I'm your host, Maddie Lewis, infectious disease epidemiologist. And in today's episode, I'm explaining how to become an epidemiologist every step of the way. But before we get started, I first have a segment called No One Asked But, where I give you my unsolicited commentary and opinions. All I want to talk about in this segment is what I did today because it was so wonderful. Today is Veterans Day and I work for the federal government, kind of. It's kind of hard to explain who I work for. And so I had the day off and it's a Thursday, so I made a few plans just by myself because I've been trying to do more things by myself. And the second I started doing that, I realized it was super fun and now I'm obsessed and I want to do everything myself. And I love hanging out with friends. I am extremely extroverted, very social, but doing things by myself has been so fun. I've been going to some restaurants by myself. Anyway, so what I did was I slept in until 10 a.m., which was great. And I went to Hobby Lobby. I know some people listening to this are like, Maddie, why are you going to Hobby Lobby? Um, And it's because I wanted decorations for my new office at work. So my job, we are moving offices to a much nicer building. Um, The federal agency I work for is very underfunded. And so our research building is really bad and crusty and old. And there's 60 people who work there and there's like 15 computers. Luckily, we work from home, though, most of the time, except once a week. And so, yeah, we're moving offices where everybody can actually fit. It's so much nicer. And we're actually encouraged to decorate our new cubicle offices. And um, so I was like, no better place than Hobby Lobby to find random little things to make me happy. And Hobby Lobby is so cheap. Like, they always have 50% off frames and decorations and Christmas decor um, don't necessarily support the ethics of the company, don't really support the ethics of many companies that I shop at, but you know, gotta do what you gotta do under capitalism. So I picked up a few things from there, got a frame, Um, we'll probably buy some more frames and hang out more pictures whenever we actually move there. And yeah, they're so cute. And then after Hobby Lobby, I drove all the way to Midtown of the city that I live in and went to this really, really cute French bakery. This place, it feels like you're in France, Paris, when you're there. Everything is so European. The seats, the tables, a lot of the staff are French. The food is definitely like authentic French. I've been to Paris Not that I can attest to what is authentic, but it tastes not American. It tastes high quality. The bread is like real bread. It ain't no like sliced loaf that you can get at the grocery store. It's real bread. Everything is so good. And the pastries are insane. If you've ever been to France and gone to a bakery there, you know, the like in Paris, for example, there's so many of these like French bakeries and the pastries and the tarts are so insane. They're so insanely beautiful. They're like little pieces of art. And somehow they're always only like three to eight dollars each. 
And yeah, they're pretty small, but like you can easily eat one yourself or share one with someone else for a dessert or snack. And you know, they're pretty rich. Like I think they should cost more for how beautiful they look. I didn't get one of those like really beautiful pastries. I got a flavored green tea. Their quality of their green tea is so good. Like it, it tastes so good compared to something you would get at the grocery store. The service is really good. I also got a sandwich for lunch and then a macaron as a little snack. I knew I wouldn't have enough room after the sandwich for like a full pastry. But if I had gone there with a friend, then I definitely would have gotten like a like a chocolate tart or something. Ugh, but the vibes of this place, you guys, so cute. And I spent two hours there, maybe more. Um, I was just journaling and just kind of sitting there thinking, uh, just enjoying my tea and my sandwich. And then I worked on my podcast a little bit, writing this episode, and it was just so nice. I so recommend everybody to start doing things by themselves. It is so fun. I can't believe it took me so long to really start doing this and I can't wait. And now I'm even like, dang, I kind of want to travel alone now. Like this is so fun. Ugh, but I love that bakery and I want to go back more. It's kind of, it's not so far, but it's a little distancey from my apartment. So I definitely can't go there every week. My wallet would hate me if I went there every week anyway, but a couple times a month would be amazing. That place is just such a good vibe. And then I was going to go to um, my local art museum in my city that has, you know, like good European and whatever, modern art and just a variety of art pieces. But it was three o'clock by the time I was done at the cafe and the museum closed at five. So I was like, I'll just go another day. And then I decided to go back home and I've had this gift card for a long time to Cheesecake Factory. So I decided I would go and I was going to go by myself, but then I was like, eh, I'll invite my roommate. So and then we ended up going with our friend and that was nice. So we had drinks and appetizers at Cheesecake Factory. I didn't realize, but Cheesecake Factory actually has a really cheap happy hour. Their appetizers, are they're all either $6 or $8.00. And um, they're really big because, you know, Cheesecake Factory, their portions are huge. So it's actually a really good deal. But the thing is, their drinks are on sale, so they kind of get you there. And yeah, that was really fun. And then I got home and I took a bath and it was one of the most lovely holidays and days off that I've had in a long time because I was very intentional about it being fun. Okay, and with that said, let's get into how to become an epidemiologist step by step. Step number one is to understand what an epidemiologist is and what they do to understand if this is even something you'd be interested in. The best source for this information is my podcast, my second full episode called Day in the Life of an Epidemiologist. I must warn you, there are very limited resources online that actually depict what epidemiologists really do. A lot of websites, including the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics and some other blogs I checked out, say that epidemiologists do a lot of work in labs, and I really do not believe that that is true at all. I would say very few of us actually work in labs or do lab work. So that is why you should make sure that you're getting information about this career field from people who are actually epidemiologists and not just like the blogs and the websites. And if you have any questions about the career field of epidemiology, you can always email me at epicentralpodcast at gmail.com. 
Okay, step number two is to get a bachelor's degree at an accredited university. This degree does not necessarily have to be in a specific major, but that depends on the schools that you're interested in. So if you're getting a bachelor's degree now and it's irrelevant to public health or just any of the sciences, so for example, if you're getting a business degree, don't panic. You will just have to find master's programs that don't have a specific major requirement. And honestly, I don't think that would be hard or should be a problem at all. If you do have a relevant bachelor's degree in public health or any type of science, then naturally it might be slightly easier for you admission-wise, but it's really not that big of a deal or difference in my opinion. Okay, let's get back to people who are not majoring in biology or any of the sciences. Again, don't fret if that's you. I personally don't think it'll be that big of a deal, but you should still definitely take a few science classes, and I would recommend also taking statistics. Specifically, I would recommend taking at least one of these courses from this list. Biology, human biology, anatomy, physiology, or health sciences. At least one of those, I would say. And again, I would go ahead and take statistics or biostatistics no matter what, because that is very important in epidemiology and you will be taking those at the grad school level. One reason this is a good idea is because some schools do require a couple of credits of science and or math for admission to the MPH program. So you might as well widen that net for those schools by taking those classes. Another reason is that if you're going to enter into the sciences, which epidemiology certainly is a science, you should know what it's like to take science courses. It's not to say that any of you aren't smart enough, but more like you might want to understand what you're getting yourself into. I think we all know by now that science is not the easiest thing in the world. I know with pre-med students, for example, a lot of people go in thinking they want to be a doctor, but realize that they don't care that much about science. I think a lot of those people just like the idea of being a doctor, but not the material that doctors actually study. So same with epidemiology. I would hate for someone to go all the way through undergrad and start their MPH without realizing that they're not actually that interested in the material of epidemiology, but you're just interested in the idea of being an epidemiologist because it sounds cool. Now, let's talk about people who do have a related scientific type degree. You have a lot less to worry about. You'll probably meet the prerequisites of any school in terms of academics pretty easily without having to try. Most people I know who are epidemiologists majored in biology. I know that's what I did. However, there are many people who also majored in public health, environmental science, psychology, chemistry, health science, and more. No one asked for my advice, but here it is. Just major in whatever science you find most interesting. Any of the sciences will be helpful to you in some way. I can guarantee that. Oh, and by the way, I do still use the knowledge that I learned from undergrad at my job today. I talk more in detail about what I do for my job and how my undergrad experience relates to that in my episode, Day in the Life of an Epidemiologist. But what I do is I read medical charts as part of my job, so I have to know medical terminology and some stuff about medicine and the human body. 
Now, of course, I have Google and I have my coworkers at my disposal if things get really complicated. But if things get really complicated, we can ask a physician or we can ask people at CDC. So I never have to know that that much. But I can't imagine my job would be a good amount more difficult if I didn't have a medical background. Okay, that's all I have to say for now about classes in undergrad. Now let's talk about jobs in undergrad. I would recommend everyone to work a part-time job, and that's what most people will do naturally anyway. At some point, I think just about all of my colleagues at my MPH program worked a part-time job in the health field specifically. Some of us, like myself, worked in healthcare. Some part-time jobs you can do as an undergrad in healthcare are you could be a certified nurse assistant, aka a CNA, which is what I did. Similarly, you could be a caregiver or a home health aide type of worker. You could also be a phlebotomist. You could be an EMT a scribe, uh, you could do medical transport, and there are several other options. As you can probably guess, some of these do require certification and others do not, so you just have to look into the specifics yourself for each of these jobs. Working in healthcare is not at all the only public health type of experience that you can get. More traditional public health experience would look like working in a public health department, for example, which is more like the type of jobs that epidemiologists actually do day to day, which are more like the jobs that you would be looking at after graduating with your MPH anyway. Getting health department experience as an undergrad is probably a lot easier now than it was years ago because a lot of health departments got emergency funding for COVID and hired lots of students and part-time workers to help with the response, such as with contact tracing and case investigation. You can find a job at your nearby health departments by looking on their websites or calling their volunteer or career departments. Some actually have positions or internships exclusively for undergrads or graduate students, so make sure to check that out. Traditionally, health department work was basically all in person, but since the pandemic, a lot of the work has been able to be done exclusively online. So if you live kind of far from, let's say, your state health department, you might see if you'd be able to apply to those remote part-time jobs. Another popular job or internship type of thing that you can get as an undergrad is in global health. A lot of the boots on the ground global health work, meaning work physically done in another country, is usually conducted in the summer. But please listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Not all global health work is good. In fact, if you look for global health internships for students online, I would say a lot, if not the majority of these organizations are not good. There are a lot of companies that will charge you an arm and a leg to get students, usually a lot of pre-med, pre-nursing type students is who they target, to go on like a week-long trip, let's say, to Guatemala to like build a school or an orphanage. That's a very classic example that you will see. But this is so bad for so many reasons, you guys. I don't even know where to start with this. <laughs> So for one, if the global health trip is in another country and it's only for like a week, that's a red flag. Red flag number one, in order to really build a good relationship with an organization in another country or to really get good work done, you typically want to be deployed for at least a month or more. There is only so much work you can do in a week, right? Also, imagine trying to build an entire school in a week. That 
that's not good quality construction, but I'm no expert. I just don't think things like that should be rushed. Another big red flag is if they're getting students to help build a school or do any sort of construction. None of these students are qualified to be doing that type of work, and I don't think that's very safe for the students, but also the people who are potentially going to be using those buildings for years. Imagine being an orphan in another country and knowing that the building you sleep in was literally made by someone who never had constructed anything before. That's terrifying, and I don't think it's very fair. Not to mention, there are plenty of qualified people who can do that type of labor in the respective country. And if these organizations would just hire local workers instead of unqualified interns, that money would go back into their economy and generate more jobs and opportunities. Not to mention the amount of money you would spend, which would be anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000 for that type of trip. That type of money could go so much further in the hands of somebody in that country. So really, if it's anything like that type of work where you're going for a week, building a school, whatever, I am begging you, please do not do it. It's not right, and it often causes more harm than good. And this is somewhat of a controversial take, but I do think that not all global health work is bad. Now, global health work has a long history connected with colonialism and forcing people to convert religions, so like sketchy missionary work and other bad things, none of which I believe are okay. However, we do truly live in a very connected world where the health of people in one country greatly affects the health of people around the world. And a lot of countries don't have a stable health system. We saw this with Ebola, especially health systems that are strong enough to withstand epidemics or pandemics. So even though I will always recognize the history of global health and all of the sketchy stuff that continues to go on, and even recognize how CDC and the World Health Organization have mishandled situations, which they have many, many times, don't get it twisted, I still think there is a place for global health in this world. And the place where I see students being the most helpful, in my opinion, is in health system strengthening by partnering with health organizations in other countries and giving them resources and building an authentic relationship with them. And that's the type of work I did in undergrad, and I will always recommend to people, I will never ever condone or recommend those week-long missionary trips to build a school, just all of that is so sketchy. However, if you are listening to this and you have done something like that, one of those sketchy week-long trips in the past, I'm not criticizing you. I know that 99% of people who go on those trips are not aware of the harms and they do have good intentions to help people. But if you are listening to this and you have not gone on a trip like that, now you know, so definitely avoid them. There are plenty of books and documentaries about the harms of volunteerism, which is basically what I just described. So if you want to learn more, just Google it. You will find many, many resources about the harms of those types of things. I will probably make an entire podcast episode on just that topic because there is just so much more to say and so many red flags to look out for and what is helpful and what is not and what are the pros and cons of global health. So yes, again, I would recommend anybody wanting to enter the field of public health or anyone wanting to be an epidemiologist to at some point get a job in the field. 
Also, another really good job is research. So you can work in clinical research, you can work in a research lab, infectious disease lab. There's so many options. Just look out there, reach out to your, your professors and your teachers and see what type of work that you can do as an undergrad. And even if you don't find work directly with what you want to do, like if you want to be an infectious disease epi, you don't have to work in infectious disease. But really anything that is relevant to public health in general will likely be helpful to you application-wise and to understand if this is actually the type of work you want to do for the rest of your life. Everything I just said about jobs can be applied to volunteering because it's really all the same. Volunteering is just the free, unpaid version. <laughs> so my only advice for volunteering is something that I really am passionate about. So please, again, listen closely to what I'm going to say. Do meaningful work. Don't sign up to volunteer for stuff you don't really care about. And this is why. When I was an undergrad, so many pre-med and pre-dental and pre-health and whatever students would do volunteer work that they really didn't care about. And so they would complain and be like, oh my god, I have to wake up at 8 a.m. tomorrow to go volunteer for this 5k just so I can get service hours, uh, this sucks, whatever. And it's like, what? <laughs> why are you doing that? You have the opportunity to volunteer at a hospital and to network with tons of healthcare providers and like actually help out the very population of people you actually want to eventually serve, but instead you chose work that you thought was meaningless. That never made sense to me. So for real, if you have something that you're passionate about, like if you're passionate about sex education, for example, go seek out internships and volunteer work in that area. If you're passionate about homelessness, go volunteer in that area. Even if you're just kind of interested in something, Go explore your passions and your interests. This is better for everyone involved. For one, the people or the community that you are serving are better off with volunteers who actually care about them because more passionate volunteers, in theory, are more likely to stick around long term and just be more involved. Second, it's better for you because admission committees and scholarship committees and whoever will better recognize that you are passionate and actually did things according to your passions. Who do you think a committee would rather give a scholarship to? Someone who spent three years volunteering boots on the ground in their community for a cause that they actually cared about and wrote about in their personal statement, plus had a recommendation letter from their volunteer coordinator. Or do you think they would rather give a scholarship to a student who got 200 service hours at a bunch of random places and can't really speak on the work they did and don't really have any connections because of it, um, but just say they're quote unquote passionate about service? Um, no, that second person sounds like they just did community service so that they could get into grad school. And if I was on that admissions committee, I would say, no, let's pick the person who is involved in their community, who worked there, worked for this charity for several years, and who can really speak on their experiences and the skills that they gained from those experiences. Everyone's sake, just do volunteering and work and internships that you actually care about and do your best at them. Okay, now let's talk about applications while you're in undergrad, and then we will talk about working between undergrad and grad school. Okay, the application for MPH programs is called SOFAS. That's spelled S-O-P-H-A-S, SOFAS. 
It's the Centralized Application Service for MPH Programs. That's what it says on its website. So basically, you can use this one application to apply to a variety of public health programs. Now, before you get started on the SOVIS app, be sure to check online with the specific programs that you are interested in to see if they have different requirements. For example, if you are applying to a combined program like an MD-MPH or an MBA-MPH, then you will probably have multiple application systems, obviously, so, so be sure to check those out online. To apply to get your MPH, expect to have the following things in order. First, a completed bachelor's degree or your anticipated graduation date to meet the requirements of that program. This should be pretty obvious. You have to have an undergrad to go into grad school, <laughs> typically. Second, you'll need an official transcript of your college courses and grades. Usually, you can get a college transcript by contacting the college that you went to a lot of colleges do charge some money for the official transcript, which is dumb. I mean, they already scammed you out of thousands of dollars to get your degree, and they're going to, again, charge you for proof that you completed those classes that you paid thousands of dollars for. Anyway, just remember that if it calls for an official transcript, you do need to make sure it's official. Do not use an unofficial transcript version because it will not count. And the last thing you wanna do is to think that you applied somewhere, but you actually did not apply because you are missing an essential part of the application. Third, you'll likely need a statement of purpose or a personal statement, which is a short essay. Usually the essay prompt is about why you are applying and what you plan to do with your degree. I applied to three different schools myself, and all of my essays had the same body, but I changed the first and last paragraphs, so the intro and conclusion, and possibly a few sentences in the body for each one. I'll go into more detail in a bit about the essay because I think it's one of the most important parts of the application. Okay, the fourth thing you'll need for applying to MPH programs, you'll need descriptions of top experiences you've had and how they're relevant somehow to getting your Master of Public Health degree. Or at least I needed this in 2019, but I can't tell you if it's changed a bit. Um, I'm not going to Google that. I don't know how to Google that, So, but I'm pretty sure everybody will still need that. Basically, I needed to write a one to two paragraph description of maybe the top five to ten top relevant experiences so I wrote about a few of my jobs, some internships, and, some, and my global health experience, and a few other things. And make sure, obviously, that these descriptions highlight your relevant skills. Fifth, and I think last, hopefully I'm not missing anything, is you'll need the grad school standardized test, that's what I call it, which is the GRE. I don't even know what GRE stands for, and I don't care. Um, it's so irrelevant in my life, thankfully, just like the ACT. Huh. I had to take, oh, side note, as an undergrad, do you guys remember what you got on the ACT? Some of my friends and I were talking about this. We're all like 24 to 26 years old, so we haven't thought about the ACT since we were like 16, 17, and it took me a second to remember what I got, and I feel so happy with that because at one point the ACT took up so much stress in my life and it's just so nice to look back and be like wow it really it paid off but I'm so glad that's something I don't have to think about anymore. Anyway 
Side ramble, as always, I had to take the GRE for at least a couple of the schools that I applied to. However, each year it seems less and less schools require it. I'm not about to Google how many of them still do require the GRE, so just please look that up yourself depending on where you're going or where you want to go. But honestly, the GRE is not too hard, so don't stress too much about it. Just make sure you can cut out a couple of weeks or a couple of months of some of your free time to prepare. I prepared myself for maybe a month. I did a few practice tests and I relearned some high school math and I tried to learn some vocabulary as well. Didn't go so great. <laughs> I studied maybe 5 to 15 hours a week for a month and I ended up only getting around 50th percentile on each section, which is just average. But I still got into all three schools I applied to, two of which were pretty darn competitive. I really wouldn't worry too much about the GRE, as long as your GPA and your experiences are pretty good. And the sixth thing you'll need, I think, is a resume. I believe you do need a resume, but you should already have one, so that really shouldn't take up much of your time. So again, those are the things that you're going to need for your NPH application. Now let's talk specifically about the statement of purpose. This is really important. I just want to emphasize that I really do think this is the most vital parts of your application. This is where you can touch on any of your faults, like bad grades or lack of experiences. You can also talk about your values and passions and dreams, which is obviously what you should focus on the most. You have so much opportunity to talk about whatever you want. Honestly, I worked on my statement of purpose for like six months and got so many edits. It was kind of overkill, but I think my essay is the primary reason that I got into competitive schools and my grades were just kind of evidence that I could make it through a quote harder program. But yeah, I don't think my grades are the reason that I got into competitive schools. I really think it was my essay. And truly, I do think my statement of purpose essay was one of the best pieces of writing that I've ever created, which makes sense because I spent so much time on it. Again, my strategy with the essay was to make the body pretty much the same for each of the essays. And that's where I talked about my experiences and my skills and my values and then the intro was mostly the same, but I changed a few things to be specific to each school. And then in the second to last paragraph, or maybe it was just the last paragraph, I'm not, I can't remember. That part was written completely new for each essay because that's where I wrote about what I wanted to do at each school and why I was a competitive candidate for that specific program. You don't have to follow that formula, but I do think it's best to have some sort of customization to each program, even if it's just one or two sentences of why you want to be in that program specifically. The last thing I will say about MPH applications that I don't know if everybody listening to this really knows, but MPH programs are not that hard to get into. And I couldn't have imagined getting into those programs for undergrad, especially because undergrad programs are so much more competitive. But as you go up in your education, there's just way less candidates. And the MPH degree before COVID was not the most popular thing. <laughs> like nobody really knew what 
a master of public health degree was or public health or what epidemiologists were. Post-pandemic, I can't say for sure, but I think it's a reasonable guess to say that they will probably only become more competitive because I think applications will probably increase over the next five to ten years, but I can't see it being the level of competition as, let's say, med school. I don't think it's going to get to that level, hopefully. So if you do want to go to an Ivy League, I would obviously only apply if you have several reasons outside of just wanting the Ivy League name to do it. But if you really do want to go to a big name school, like you've always dreamed about going to Harvard or something, this is like your chance in life to go. If if you already know you want to be an epidemiologist and get your MPH, then going for your master's is probably the easiest level of competition to get into a school like that. PhD programs have a lot less candidates than master's programs do, but they have significantly less spots. So again, I would say this is your chance. Oh, and side note, when I was applying, Harvard and Johns Hopkins, which are the number one schools of public health, do require two years of work experience after you graduate with your bachelor's degree. So I could not apply to either of these because I didn't have full-time post-undergrad work experience. But if I would have been able to apply, I might have actually ended up going to Harvard instead of where I went, um, which would have been so fun because my bestie Isabella goes to Harvard for grad school. And I think we would have been there at the same time for a year and that would have been so fun but Boston is way too cold and I might not have actually chosen it over where I went (laughs) just because of that reason and it's also really expensive but I can't say for sure what I would have done if I would have applied and gotten into Harvard (laughs) okay that perfectly transitions us to the last part of this episode which is about whether or not you should work full-time between undergrad and grad school There are some pros and cons to both, so here are some things to consider. If you do work in between undergrad and grad school, you can save up money and live more comfortably earlier in life rather than extending out that broke student life. You also can get a mental health break, which is nice. You can also gain life experiences, like if you want to get married after undergrad, then that would be easier to do. You could start a family, you could travel, or really do whatever you want in life. You can also gain professional experiences that you might not have been able to do while being a student, like if you wanted to work abroad in a different country, if you wanted to move cities or states, or do something like Peace Corps. Now that I mentioned that, I might actually do a whole episode on Peace Corps because I think that whole program is very interesting and there's so much to say and maybe I'll combine that with the global health episode. I do think having these extra professional experiences would probably give you an edge in getting scholarships. I actually 100% do believe that you would have a better chance of getting a scholarship if you work in between undergrad and grad school, but of course nothing is guaranteed, but I really do think that. Also, like I mentioned, a few top programs do require full-time work experience after undergrad, so it does make you eligible for those programs, too. You can also hopefully be more sure about what direction you want to take in life, rather than possibly feeling rushed as a 22-year-old. I was only 21, 
I believe when I made the decision to become an epidemiologist, which is really young to figure out what you want to do in life. And looking back at college, I can't believe I was 18 trying to make that decision. Like what? Here are a few other things to consider. If you do work full time, you will be older when you graduate, which honestly, you're still only in your mid 20s. And that's not that big of a difference. But for some people, they do care for different reasons. Also, when some people graduate and start working full-time, they lose the motivation to go back to that low-income, stressful student life like I mentioned earlier, and I totally get that now that I'm graduated. I myself went straight from undergrad to grad school, so now that I am out here no longer a student, I'm no longer broke because, like I said, I'm a full-time epidemiologist, I am no longer broke and I can't even fathom being a student again. Like, could not be me. My life was so miserable compared to my life now. My life is so much better. Also, if you go straight from undergrad to grad school, assuming you have federal loans, you don't have to start paying those student loan payments until six months after you graduate from grad school. So by that time, you'll hopefully have a much higher full-time paying job than you would have um, from a job that you could get between undergrad and grad school. Because of course, after grad school, you're qualified for higher paying jobs like epidemiologist jobs, which I mentioned this in the Day in the Life episode, but epidemiologists make somewhere between, eh, let's just say 50 to 75k starting. It totally depends on where you live but that's the average. And if you just have a bachelor's degree in, let's say, biology, your salary potential is probably more like 30 to 50k starting. Again, that totally depends on the city you live in, but you're just more likely to make more as an epidemiologist, which is probably part of the reason you want to become one. Either way, the choice is super personal, and as much as I love giving my opinions and commentary on literally anything... I really don't have any on when it comes to working full-time between undergrad and grad school. All I can say is that I am more than happy with my decision to go straight through and not work full-time in between school, and I have zero regrets. I know many, many people who did work in between undergrad and grad school, and they seem really happy with their decision, so decision's up to you. I really don't think it makes too much of a difference overall in life, but it is very personal. Okay, well, that is enough for this episode. I will be making at least one or two more parts of this, and this is Epicentral Podcast, so I will make many, many episodes about the field of epidemiology. So to all you students, stick around, follow on Spotify, and send this to anyone you know who wants to become an epidemiologist. And have a good week, y'all. Bye!